Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the province of Ontario reporting 700 new cases of COVID-19. What do we have to do to make the younger demographic pay attention to protocols? The Huawei CFO is back in court today trying to avoid extradition to the United States. And the RCMP arrested a Burlington man and have charged him with a terrorism hoax charge. What is that and what does it mean? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. How's that leg doing? Feeling good? You ready? What does that face mean? I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ontario is at 700 new COVID-19 cases today. A record. Can those of you between the ages of 20 and 40 slop with the sloppy kissing? You're killing us. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> All right. And there he goes. Sounds of metal crutches uh, leaving the room. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Slow down. Slow down, man. we got to retreat a, a bit here. 700 new cases, uh, COVID-19 cases today. That is a record. Uh, that is more than uh, we had back in May uh, during the peak of all of this. Here's what Health Minister Christine Elliott had to say about the increases during this morning's question period. I would say that while the increase in COVID-19 cases is very unfortunate, it's also not unexpected. We have prepared for this throughout the summer months. We knew that we were going to see an increase in cases. We know where we're facing flu season as well, and we're trying to keep the number of scheduled surgeries and procedures also on track. That is why we developed our comprehensive plan, keeping Ontarians safe, preparing for future waves of COVID-19. The plan has been in place for some time. It has already been in, in implementation for a long time. What we're doing is building on some of the basics that we started with testing, tracing, uh, and isolation to make sure that we can reduce the community transmission. But specifically in terms of contact tracing, we are investing over a billion dollars to expand efforts to test, trace, and isolate COVID-19 cases. And as part of this, we are going to be bringing in more than 500 new contact tracers. All right, that is uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott speaking this morning in question period. Uh, Again, we're seeing 60 to 70 percent of these new cases are between the ages of 20 and 40, and this is the majority in Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa. Uh, To talk more about all of this and how we get the messaging across to that specific demographic, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. Alyssa PR, she is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. hope you're doing well. Yes, and I hope you're doing well too, Scott. I am, thanks. And so, obviously, there's messaging here, uh, and everybody knows what the heck we're supposed to do now. I think we've had that rammed down our throats. We know what the situation is. People are now making choices. So what does government across the country, across the world, have to do to somehow get the message across to the 20 to 40-year-old demographic that you got to pull back? You know, you're a creator of messaging. What needs to be done here? Well, the first thing is I'd like to sort of dial back and pick up on on what you were just talking about, Scott. And we're, you know, we know that these numbers are coming from last week. 
And a lot of this is because of back to school and the frosh weeks across and just frosh and, and going back to school period on university and college, college campuses across the province. And I think that for, it can only really speak to, you know, kids who are in post-secondary education, but a lot of them, you know, went back to their university towns. And I think that while they were trying to be uh, careful, that it was a little bit of a get out of jail free card for the first two weeks to be quite honest, even though they had bubbles. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how big or small those bubbles were. And a lot of them have been tested, and those numbers are now just coming to the fore. So, uh, for example, there's a lot of university campuses that also figured out that they should also have their own assessment centers on campus versus pushing all the kids to public health and having to wait four hours in line. So I think that, A, a lot of those numbers are being reported because of that. B, at least for post-secondary students, I think that most of them have now um, are now scared and are dialing way back on their socializing and staying in their homes, you know, with other, you know, their fellow students or in dorms and being much, much more careful. So I have to think that that's happening. In terms of other things happening like car rallies and, you know, uh, restaurants on King Street West here in Toronto that are now being closed for, you know, flagrant violations, you'd have to think that, A, if the messaging isn't getting across, you know, do you, does the government need to speak to their, um, you know, to their ad agencies of which they are in touch with them all the time? And think, okay, so if broad-based information isn't uh, isn't working, what kind of information will in order to hit this demographic? We all are exposed to the same information. And even, in fact, this morning, I heard that your uh, chance of catching COVID is diminished by 65% if you wear a mask, wash your hands, and practice social distancing. The issue that I'm seeing is, is that people are getting COVID protocol fatigue and they just don't want to do it anymore. Well, you know, in terms of creating behavior change, we know that behavior change in any sort of realm takes a long time. You're asking somebody to quit smoking, you've got to get them to the contemplation phase even before they decide to quit smoking. You know, here we have something that the behavior change is not that hard to do. But people still are not picking it up. So maybe we need scarier statistics. Maybe we need demographically niche statistics. Um, and I think that... Maybe know, we need to inject some of these kids with uh, a test vaccine just to see what's going on. Well, maybe we should find them $750 and then stand them in line for testing. Well, there's that too. So, I, you know, it's interesting. My daughter did a, a radio interview last week and she said... Nobody wants to get fined $10,000 or $750 just for showing up there. So I think if there was more of that, especially happening in these university towns, or apparently they didn't have the, the manpower to do so at this car rally, I think that people would, would think twice when it hits them in the, in, the, in, the, in the wallet. Did the universities do enough at the beginning of all of this? Because, I mean, it, you know, at the beginning of Frosh Week, as you said, the, the mayor of London was irate with Western. They were just going nuts. Uh, there was other universities, because my daughter's in this cohort, uh, where she's heard there's other universities. If you get caught doing this, you're expelled. End of story. So it seems that some got the message, some didn't. 
I agree with that. I think that there was no consistency among the universities in terms of protocol. I know that at the university that my daughter is at, there was lots of communication via social media, actually, which is the only way that I found out about it, about what they expected from the students. Um, although, you know, students read that and go, mm-hmm, yeah, no problem. Yeah. I think that the universities were caught off guard thinking that public health was going to be able to handle all this. Well, we know that public health is under-resourced to begin with before COVID. COVID has just, you know, exposed the frailties in public health. So to expect all their students just to go to public health with the rest of the population to get tested, I think that universities should have been a little bit more proactive and had a COVID testing assessment center, of which many have put into place now. So I think that there was you know, there's your written communication, there's your social media communication, but then there's actually, and I think that at my daughter's university too, that they're saying, listen, you're caught, this will go before a quote-unquote tribunal, and we'll decide whether to expel you or not. So do you think what we saw happen, for example, over the weekend at Wasega Beach, is that fatigue or is that just rebelness, just recklessness and, you know, uh, who cares, you know? Yeah, Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that. I also think the weather has something to do with it. It's still nice outside. You know, if this was November, there's no car rallies happening in Wasega Beach. So what is so what is if you were in charge of writing a message to target these this demographic, 20 to 39 year olds, what would you say to them? Because obviously, if you sit there and you wag the finger at them, you know, the boomer wags wags the finger. And by the way, I don't think we're boomers yet. But, um, you know, instead of having an older person wag a finger at them, what will resonate? I think how the numbers are, first of all, I think you have to come up with something evidence-based and consistent. So, you know, right now, all the messaging is about follow the protocols. Nothing is really demographically pitched. So maybe pitch directly to that demographic, number one. Tell them about what the numbers that we're seeing and what their, without following protocols, what their percentage is now of catching COVID. So do you handle this like a drunk driving or a smoking thing where you go, guess what? Here's 26-year-old whatever. Here's what happened to them. Here's 22-year-old whatever. Here's what happened to their grandparents. Here's what, do you do that? I don't think that that's what's happening. Uh, you know, our hospitals are not filled with 20 to 40 year olds, quite no. honestly. A lot of them are asymptomatic. Um, for example, you know, I heard at McGill that there's lots of COVID cases happening there now because there's a lot of U.S. students that go back and forth, I suppose. So, you know, we can't, I don't know if you can scare them like that, but you're going to end up in the hospital. I mean, they could, but evidence suggests that they probably wouldn't. But, you know, you can lose your sense of taste. You can lose your sense of smell. So perhaps maybe something along, and I don't even know if people will really resonate. Like, you know, I can tell you from being in a health charity for many, many years that when you do those super scary messages, people listen to them once or twice, and then they don't yeah. want to listen to them anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's why it was always so hard to educate people about stroke, because it's such a terrible disease that people don't want to hear about it, to be yeah. quite honest. So if you're going down the scary route, I don't know if that will work, but you know, maybe going down the monetary route, going, you know, there was this, there was this party, and we have so far charged, you know, X number of people ten thousand dollars, and the rest, and this, this is how many people that we have charged with seven hundred and fifty dollars. So I think that if you make it very clear and consistent, and the other thing too that I was just reading in some of the articles before coming on here was that. You know, some people are saying the government is not being transparent enough about where the transmissions are happening. 
which neighborhoods they're happening in. I mean, we are hearing that in, you know, downtown Toronto on King Street West, that there was, there was quite a bit of transmission. I also read in that same article that people were told to come to work, even though they weren't feeling that great. Hmm. So that's a whole other ball of wax yeah, for that yeah. particular industry. But I think that you really have to think about the demographic and how that demographic digests that information and then create messaging that would uh, encourage them to act accordingly. Alyssa Freeman's been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Be well. And you too, Scott. Thanks for having me. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor, health policy expert, is with us now. Ahmad, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, I guess we did predict this a while ago. It's two weeks. You normally have an incubation period from exposure till we get to uh, a test of positive. So what we're seeing now is two weeks ago, this is the beginning of back to school and back to university. Your thoughts of where we were, or where we are, rather. The numbers in Toronto are very alarming to me. I think 344 in Toronto, 104 in Peel, 89 in Ottawa, and 56 in New York, which tells us that Toronto has been hit the most out of the 700 new cases of coronavirus. That's alarming because that tells us that the hot spots are happening in our province and we need to address those specifically. So we need to look at what's going on in Toronto that's causing this massive increase in the numbers. I do agree with the minister that, you know, we have things in place that are helping us get ahead of this. Though the numbers are high and alarming, they're not surprising. We've always said this. We expect the numbers to fluctuate. We expect the rise in the numbers and the drop in the numbers. The real question becomes now is can we get ahead of this so that the numbers don't continue to rise? That's what we need to be paying close attention to. None of us can predict the numbers, but we can anticipate that, uh, you know, we have things in place and hopefully that will get us at a place where we're not looking at another increased spike in the numbers in the next coming days. Uh, doctor, we're obviously 29 weeks into this, you know, masking, social distancing, washing of the hands. I think we all know the protocol by now. Obviously, there is COVID fatigue there. Um, but but obviously with what's, what we're seeing in those areas that you mentioned and, for example, the gathering that was at Wasega Beach over the, the course of the weekend, it, like these people know what the story is. They just seem to be rebelling against it. How do you get the message across to that 20 to 39-year-old uh, cohort, which is between 60 and 70 percent of the new cases? I, I mean, we know what the message is. How do we target it to them? That's a great question, Scott. I think, A, and first and foremost, we need to look at the communication strategy. The, the younger demographic now needs creative outlets of us disseminating that knowledge. So we really need to be exposed to exploring social media. We need to be looking at Instagram and, and TikTok. Use celebrities to help promote the message. I mean, I know some people might listen to this and think, oh, I can't believe we're getting to this point. But we are at this point. We're seeing that like you just stated, many people, some people, especially the younger demographic, not to put the blame on them, but the message is not getting loud, uh, uh, clear enough that this is a very serious pandemic and that our efforts to sort of get ahead of it is not yet relaxed. We can't forget that social distancing, safe hand hygiene are, are critically critical importance and that we need to reduce, for example, the use of public transit. I mean, if you look at Toronto, where 344 the numbers are right now, you look at our uh, streetcars and our subways, you'll notice just by observing them that the number of people using public transport now has increased, um, which tells me that there is a sense that people are, are, are trying to get back to normal life, but in the, in the midst of a pandemic that hasn't gone away. So I think that our messaging needs to change. But I also think that Canada is now looking at um, legal implications for people who are aware of the restrictions or are testing positive for COVID-19 and not alerting others. 
I think we need to start looking at other modes of enforcing some of those rules. Uh, where we are now, obviously, like I said two weeks ago, uh, these are the results of what do you anticipate for the rest of this week leading into next week? Uh, have, you know, certainly with, we saw what was happening with universities and so on and so forth. H- has that message got across? I, I think that message has come across, but I think it will continue to be, re- need to be reiterated. Um, and I think we need to be paying very close attention to hotspots. I anticipate that we're going to be looking at Toronto and Peel exceptionally close in terms of the numbers to see if there's going to need to be different types of closures. So the big question right now to be asked is that are we going to see a more massive closure of things and something to pay attention from policymakers? I might, 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 I suspect, thought that, that we are going to see more closures because the numbers are only increasing, not decreasing. What about the schools, doctor? Um, because again, two weeks or so, the, the schools have been in now. We certainly have seen some cases. There's a situation where there's a school closing in, in, in your neck of the woods in Toronto. Um, but for the most part, it seems to be working. What are your thoughts about where we are with the schools? It's wait and watch. I've always said that about schools because when we, when we decided to reopen schools, we knew very well that it's going to be day to day dependent. So that the minute there is an exposure or an outbreak in any school in our province, we will have to take the precautionary measures to either closing it or deciding an alternative mode of learning. So it's very hard to say that, you know, our school reopening strategy is the way forward and that will continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. I really do believe that schools reopening is one of those policy things that are wait and watch. Every day is a telling day for it. So do you anticipate a, a more targeted approach? I guess we do this time because it's not the same as, as, you know, it was back in, in March and April and such. Or do you see these numbers getting to the point where, you know what, I think we got to we gotta pull back to stage two here? I think a more targeted approach for two reasons. First is that people do not want a full lockdown. Most people, actually the majority of people, do not want to go back to a full lockdown. A, it hurts our businesses. B, it's, well, first and foremost, it hurts our population health, which should be the goal here, but also it hurts businesses and life, uh, back to life, normal life uh, sort of procedures. And so nobody wants a full lockdown. So I think they will always be exploring uh, staggered, staged approaches to lockdown as opposed to like massive ones we had back in April. Uh, is this something we can contain by just focusing on these hot spots? I heard a reporter say uh, the other last week uh, that in Ottawa, you know, the majority of the Ontario communities are saying we're fine, we're handling this. It's just these hot spots that that is raising the ire of everyone. Do, do we are, are we are we keeping this in perspective? Well, I think what the hotspots are telling us is that we must examine health inequities in those hotspots. Why is it that Toronto? has a big number. Is it because that we don't have providing uh, adequate housing for our homeless population? Is it the reliance on public transit as opposed to, uh, you know, more safer interventions like using bikes and social distancing? What is it about those hotspots that are allowing an increase in the number? Are we not regulating enough in those hotspots? So I think that COVID-19 is exposing the health inequities um, in those cities, and we must pay close attention to them in order to fix them. It has to be part of our rebuilding plans and how we address COVID-19 in the future, because COVID-19 is not going to go anywhere, especially with the winter ter- time season coming close now. We really need to be looking closer. Are we providing adequate shelter for our homeless population? I'm not sure we are yet.
Are we, are, we, are we fooling ourselves that we can do a better job? And, of course, we can always do a better job, I guess. Uh, but in high-density areas, boy, you're, you're going to be dealing with these problems because they're just big cities. Well, we saw that when we did the full lockdown, it did help. And that when we would quickly, I, I, don't, I don't know if you recall, but, you know, one of the big issues during the, the first wave of the pandemic was our homeless population. We couldn't figure out how to provide safe space for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we quickly jumped in and some places were offering housing. Uh, we need to be looking into those models right away. We can't wait. You know, those problems have not gone away. Uh, right now, it was hot weather, so it was okay to sort of stay outside in tents. And that would prove to be a problem. So urban cities, highly dense communities, present with different problems. And that's why sometimes context matters. And that way we develop policies to address issues that have relevance to bigger population is important. I mean, the thing is, Toronto doesn't, is not in isolation. What happens in Toronto will impact other neighboring cities. Uh, and so that's why it's important for everybody to look at hotspots. They're not just, they don't exist in silos. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, medical doctor and health policy expert, talking about the increases in numbers we're seeing in new cases uh, today. And coming up in about 20 minutes' time, we will cover the Premier's News Conference live. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Stay well. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. A little while ago, I guess, uh, starting at just uh, around 1 o'clock, uh, Premier Doug Ford held his daily news conference. Here's what he had to say in regard to the second wave. Today's numbers, they're deeply concerning. And our health officials are telling us that Ontario is now in the second wave of COVID-19. We know that this wave will be more complicated, more complex. It'll be worse than the first wave we faced earlier this year. And we've all played a critical role to play. Please follow the health guidance. Please download the COVID Alert app. Please get your flu shot this year. It's absolutely critical. Uh, Premier Doug Ford talking about where Ontario is now with uh, 700 new cases in the last 24 hours. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the Huawei CFO is back in court in British Columbia today. And uh, her lawyers, the Huawei CFO's lawyers, are saying, are arguing that the U.S. has misled Canada in regard to uh, her extradition case. Does this mean anything? Is this just another step in the uh, very long process leading towards extradition? Let's bring in Charles Burton, senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. He is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Yep, everything's good down here in St. Catharines. Nice sunny day. So your thoughts on where we are with this case and what is happening today? Well, you know, the claim that the uh, her lawyers are attempting to make is that the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank were not defrauded by her about the relationship between the company Skycom and Huawei. And so, you know, the claim is that she defrauded the bank by by hiding the relationship between Huawei and Skycom, which was a firm active in in um, dealings with Iran, thereby exposing the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank to being barred from the U.S. banking system for violating the U.S.'s uh, Iran sanctions, but from the Canadian point of view, her crime is fraud. You know that she deceived the bank. Anyway, the um, her lawyers are trying to claim that it couldn't be fraud because the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank already knew about the relationship with Skycom and Huawei, and therefore knew that 
that they were violating the the U.S. Uh, Iran sanctions by by um, uh, engaging in business uh, with Huawei, you know, doing the Huawei banking for them. So um, it's a bit of a stretch, you know. It, Goes along. That was my next question. Any weight in this, Charles, or is this just another step in the never-ending uh, process? I think it's probably another step in a very long process. I mean, you know, they'll do this, and then they'll meet again in February, and then theoretically the matter could be settled in April of next year, but chances are that, you know, Ms. Mung lawyers will appeal or delay or whatever. But, um, you know, I think the general assumption of the Canadian uh, judiciary is that a U.S. prepared extradition request is is likely to be valid in accordance with the law. So all of this stuff like, um, you know, they already knew or or there were irregularities in the process of her arrest at the Vancouver airport or it's actually political because Donald Trump said that maybe he would you know, drop the charges as part of a U.S.-China trade deal. All these seem to be a bit uh, over the edge, and none of them, I think, would justify us um, not acceding to the U.S. extradition request. I mean, after all, the reason we have an extradition treaty with the U.S. is that we're confident that people who go to the U.S. for um, uh, on charges will, will receive due process of law and get a fair shake in, in a court of law and, and therefore... Um, you know, uh, if if in fact she's not guilty of these uh, serious crimes, um, it it'll come out when she's actually tried, as opposed to in the course of an assessment hmm. of an extradition request. It ke- it keeps coming back to Donald Trump's uh, position on her arrest and trade and that whole ordeal. Uh, is 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 that a red herring here? I mean, is this is is that as much of a concern as everybody thinks it should be? I think that um, you know, Mr. Trump. Uh, shoots off his mouth or shoots off a tweet, um, you know, dozens of times a day. And I don't think that the president constitutionally has the ability to stop the Eastern District of New York court from um, trying someone for fraud. Um, You know, that's really where the bottom line is. I guess he could pardon the person if they're convicted. But I don't think, you know, due to the separation of powers, independent judiciary um, executive and the legislative branch, the Congress and the Senate. Donald Trump is not a is not a dictator. He can't decide everything. There is, thank God, within the U.S. system, democratic balances that prevent that. And I think when the U.S. Constitution was written, they were anticipating someone like Mr. Trump coming into the presidency and therefore constrain his power. So I, I don't think that they can make a, a convincing argument on the basis that Trump is uh, using this to pressure China over over trade relations. And the other ones don't seem to really hold much water either, but I guess they, you know, they they, they hope to to pressure the Canadian government to engage in some extraordinary process to release her um, before she's extradited and I think part of that is concern that if she does get to the United States and faces a very long prison sentence over the fraud that she might um, go state's evidence and provide the U.S. government and us, for that matter. With so is the, strat- is the strategy here of her lawyers just to keep dragging this out as long as they possibly can? At what point is it just better for them to try to get this over with? Well, I think that uh, dragging it out as long as they can is the, is the thing. I mean, she's, yeah. uh, you know, she's not in prison and she's comfortable in Vancouver, uh, you know, fair fair distance of travel she's not allowed to go to the airport and she has to wear an ankle bracelet but basically her life is pretty nice 
And so I think that um, it does seem to be an eternal delaying process, hoping that some circumstance will arise under which, you know, she'll be sent back. I guess that one factor would be if if the election of um, Joe Biden as president replacing Donald Trump would make any difference. My guess is it would not. So, you know, but this thing could be stretched out over a dec over a decade. Apparently, if if they continue to delay and appeal, um, you know, one would really prefer that maybe she um, strike a plea bargain with the Americans and willingly go to to face the music in in New York State, and that would take this problem off the Canadian hands. The longer this drags on, is this not bad for the Huawei brand? At what point do they fold up the tent and go home? I mean, it, 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 this is, is constantly putting their name in, in, in the headlines. So at what point is it, uh, does it become counterproductive to that company? Yeah, I think that that's a good point. I mean, certainly the U.S. restrictions on Huawei's use of, um, of chips manufactured by companies that have business in the U.S. is being pretty effective in preventing them from producing their phones because really they cannot duplicate that kind of uh, chip making technology in any in any short term and aside from which um, the US has cut off uh, Huawei's use of Google apps so their phones which of course are Android um, have to develop their own native applications and that makes them much less attractive to consumers than than uh, they were when they when they were able to run Google apps mm. so it looks like Huawei will be uh, pretty much uh, ground into into uh, dissolution by the U.S.'s action. Not really connected to to Ms. Meng, although you know I, I, don't, I think more and more people are fed up with Huawei's sponsorship of Hockey Night in Canada. Boy, I <laughs> I, can, I can raise a few hands there with some friends. Uh, Charles Burton's been with a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, thanks for the time. As always, be well. Good to speak with you. All right, let's head down to the United States. Here's what uh, Reggie Giacchini from Global News had to say about the issue that Donald Trump is having now that information is coming forth on his taxes. Calling the report fake news on Sunday. Actually, I paid tax. Donald Trump did not push back on specific parts of the story that show his debt load eclipsing $300 million and tax schemes used to bring his net owing in income taxes for more than a decade to zero. The Biden campaign quickly jumped in with a new ad explaining the typical income tax paid by average Americans. The report shows soaring incomes from foreign dealings, potentially making Trump a national security threat, allowing him to put personal finance above the well-being of the country. Hundreds of millions of dollars will be due in a potential second term, meaning there could be a chance for foreclosure or a president having to declare bankruptcy. Hundreds of government employees are not given a national security clearance each year because of debts. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Donald Trump says the tax man is picking on him. Listen to this. The IRS does not treat me well. They treat me like the Tea Party, like they treated the Tea Party. They don't treat me well. They treat me very badly. Poor baby. All right, let's bring in Brian J. Karam, executive ec uh, editor, Sentinel Newspapers, White House, uh, White House reporter for Playboy and political analyst at CNN. He is with us now. Brian, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing all right. Hanging in there. How about yourself? I'm doing well. You know, I was I saw you actually uh, doing one of the press things uh, at the White House and uh, you were getting the you were getting the gears there. And I'm thinking, man, this must just be a circus for you every day. You have to go in and report on this. Uh, another issue, another day for Donald Trump. Uh, the taxes this time. Is this one going to resonate anymore or is this just more of the same? 
Well, I think everything is starting to resonate a little bit more the closer we get to um, Election Day. And those those who are firmly in Trump's camp are going to be firmly in Trump's camp. Those who are firmly not in Trump's camp are going to remain firmly not in Trump's camp. It's those people in the middle who may go either way that are listening and appreciating this a little bit more. I doubt that there any of his base will uh, – I, I mean, you know, he joked that he could walk – um, down, you know, New York Central, uh, you know, Central Park and shoot yeah. somebody in the head, Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody in the head and, and he'd be all right. And he probably would be. Um, but it's there are more and more people that are abdicating um, that and, and moving away from him. So we'll see. I think, look, most of his supporters pay far more than $750 a year in taxes and have far less disposable income than Donald Trump. At some point in time, you're going to have to reevaluate yourself just on that matter alone because it really hurts because there are people really hurting in this country, and the fact that he doesn't seem to care does resonate. And this has been an issue for a while. I mean, this is something that came out uh, as soon as he was elected. People have been been asking to see his tax returns. The fact that this has been a simmering fire and now it looks like it's flared up, does that have anything to do with it? Can he just say fake news now? He always says fake news. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's not going to change. He, he's a one-trick pony. His tactics are the same in 2020 as they are in 2016. He, you know, he wants to demand that Joe Biden take a drug test before he debates him. He said the same thing of Hillary Clinton. I, I want to know if he's going to take a cognitive test before he yeah. says, you know, does a debate, because that's probably more relevant than a drug test. Um, Let- but he's... He's not going to change. Let's talk about the debate, obviously, coming up Tuesday night. I mean, we've all been, we, we all know what it's like to get in a discussion with somebody and you think you know what you're talking about, and then all of a sudden they completely blindside you with something that's way out in, in you know, a field somewhere. What does Joe Biden have to do to get through this night? How, what, any idea, any, any sort of insight is what we could see Tuesday? The bar is incredibly low for Trump. It's higher for Biden. But Biden, if he shows up and has any energy at all, he puts to rest that, you know, the uh, the claim from Trump that he's Sleepy Joe. So that's the first thing he's got to do is come with some energy. And if I were Biden, I would call him out on every lie that he tells. I wouldn't let him get away with one of them. I would say, no, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but you're lying. No, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but you're lying. Here's what I think. And it's posted on my website. He's far more resourced and far more... um, He's done far more research than the president. The president hasn't really um, prepared for these debates, and he said he wouldn't. How big an issue will this tax issue be that now that this has come out just before the debate? I think the two issues that are going to come up that have the one that I asked about, uh, you know, peaceful transfer of, of power, that's going to be a, a, a topic in this debate, and I think taxes will be a topic in this debate. And I think both of those together are going to be something that the president is going to have an incredibly hard time answering or justifying to the people of the United States. We remember in the debates with Hillary how he would move around the floor and try to intimidate his opponent. Uh, how do you prepare for that? Well, I think Joe Biden, you know, uh, <laughs> isn't Hillary Clinton, and he ain't going to be playing it. Uh, I think he'll be prepared for it, and I don't think that uh, Trump will try the same thing with Biden that he tried with Hillary. I could be wrong. Uh, but I think if he does, I don't think Joe Biden will take his nonsense. 
Is this must-see TV for America? It must be. Or is it just guys like you and me that are freaking out well, about this? It's, it's, you know, at this point in time, I have to because I cover the president. Yeah. But honestly, I think many people have already chosen. I think some will tune in this first debate just for the uh, curiosity factor. I don't know if the second or third debates will be as, uh, depending on how the uh, outcome of this one is, uh, potentially the second or third debates won't be as as uh, widely viewed. But we'll see. I mean, you it, you can't predict with this president because he's so unpredictable and he's so chaotic. I mean, if I swear to you, if he, he if you rode out on stage tomorrow night in a unicycle and a dancing bear and started honking his answers. That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, Brian J. Karam is with his executive editor, Sentinel Newspapers, White House report, uh, reporter for Playboy and political analyst at CNN. Man, he's in there in the room every day watching this stuff go down. Brian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. We'll chat again soon. Be well. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, some uh, interesting news uh, coming out of Burlington last week. The RCMP have arrested a Burlington man and have charged him with a terrorism hoax charge. What exactly is going on? Let's bring in Stuart Bell, investigative journalist with Global News. He covered the story and is with us now. Stuart, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. So, Stuart, what happened here? How did this all transpire? Well, it's a long uh twisted story, but uh, in 2016, a, a Canadian uh, man from Burlington, Ontario, went on to his social media and claimed that he had been uh, with ISIS, that he had served with ISIS for about a year and then returned to Canada. Um, that was uh, noticed by a lot of people, as you might imagine, um, by uh, researchers in the United States, by journalists in the United States. Uh, possibly by the RCMP or CSIS. And so he began to um, come under some scrutiny. And in particular, he began speaking with uh, a reporter from the New York Times who was preparing a podcast called Caliphate, um, and to a couple of journalists in Canada as well. But um, the police were always kind of wary about his claims. His story changed quite a bit. And um, the most recent quite shocking development came Friday when he was charged with allegedly making the whole thing up. So uh, was he doing this because he's a sympathizer? Is, is, uh, is he a wannabe? Is there mental illness here? A- any sort of motive behind this? Why would you, why would you do this? Wow. That's really the central question here. And we, we just don't know um, because it's one thing, I mean, this is a hoax that was sustained. If it was a hoax, it was sustained over a period of four years. Uh, it began in 2016 and, you know, has carried on to right now. And he, even as early as last month, he was posting stuff on his social media, which kind of implied that he had been with ISIS. So, um, you know, I, you, you, most hoaxes, I think, are maybe much more short term. Why or how somebody could sustain it over that period of time is it raises all kinds of questions about why someone would do that. Is it a need for attention or did somebody see this as this kind of activity as supporting the cause in some way? I just don't know. And uh, I don't know if we'll ever know that. So has there been any found link to any organization or any reason to believe that any of this was true? You were saying that officials here weren't buying it anyway. 
Um, was there any sort of link to anything that was official, for lack of a better word? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, somebody going onto social media and uh, telling U.S. journalists that uh, he was with ISIS and that he, as he, as he told the New York Times uh, journalists, that he had stabbed people in the heart to uh, as part of uh, executions that he said he did in Syria with ISIS. So there was a lot of pressure on the government. Uh, this came up repeatedly in the House of Commons. I think the RCMP were, uh, I'm sure they were uh, very keen to get to the bottom of it. But um, I don't think they would have charged him with uh, committing a hoax if they had found anything at all that suggested that he was telling the truth. So they, they seem to really believe that he made the whole thing up. There's um, there's no evidence, you know, to support that he did what he, he said he did. Um, and there is, you know, there his as I said, his story has evolved um, and changed. There is evidence that he has been confronted with that um, that he was lying. Um, one of the first things that um, that came to my attention was that he had told me uh, that he had been in ISIS from about January 2014 for about six months. But we were able, at Global News, to get a copy of his uh, university transcript, which found that he was actually studying in Pakistan at the time. So, um, you know, so there were there was evidence that came up that contradicted his story. Um, another glaring example was he told me definitively that he had not killed anybody, um, that he was actually nice to people and just kind of spent a few boring months um, playing ISIS. But uh, and then he appeared in the New York Times. Uh, the following year, as Abu Huzaifa, the ISIS executioner, stabs people in the heart uh, in public um, executions. So, um, you know, there, his his story has absolutely changed, and there were always reasons to doubt at least some of the things he was saying. What was his demeanor when he talked to you? Did he seem stable? Not that anybody that's spouting this stuff is stable, but what was he like when you chatted with him? You know, he really seemed like somebody, uh, my impression was uh, that he was portraying himself as somebody who had uh, got wrapped up in the idea, convinced to go to Syria, um, had really not done anything, was had not really been an ISIS fighter, but he said he was... Uh, sort of a, in the religious police, but he hadn't done anything and he eventually became disillusioned and left. Um, so it was quite a, actually quite a boring story to tell you the truth. Um, and then as I say, that uh, you know, he suddenly off after that became uh, in his own words, the, the central figure of, you know, ISIS public executions. So um, he told different stories to different people, depending on who was listening. And that, was likely one of the things that set off the concerns among the investigators that he might be fabricating the whole thing. Uh, any reason, and I guess this question, I, I don't think you can answer this question, but any reason to think he might become a threat, although he's just spouting off about this, these are things that he may one day try to move on. Oh, man, I don't know about that. I mean, certainly one would hope not, but, uh, you know, he has his social media posts, um, I think, were absolutely concerning. Um, he, you know, he posted things which were, I would say, you know, would paint him as an extremist. But again, he's now being accused of being a hoax. So perhaps these were all just part of the facade that he 
was putting up for whatever reason. So it's it's really a difficult one to to wrap your head around. Um, you know, as as you say, particularly why would somebody uh, publicly identify themselves as having been in ISIS, knowing the potential consequences? It certainly does draw attention to oneself. It's as if you want to be arrested for crimes you never committed. You know, there's all terrorism hoaxes are quite interesting. Um, did some research on them as I was looking into the story, and you know, sometimes there are people that are doing things out of uh, uh, completely, you know, reasons that are completely not connected to the cause at all. They just might be, uh, maybe it's entertainment for them in some way, but. Uh, a lot of them are actually done by people that sympathize with the cause and believe that the hoax is somehow advancing the cause that they believe in, even though they're not actually uh, doing anything. So, I mean, the classic example would be somebody who, for example, phones in a bomb threat at different locations, even though they know there is no bomb. Um, they believe that creating that sense of fear and causing the police and, you know, intelligence resources to be used up chasing um, ghosts is something that, you know, somehow supports the cause. So, you know, whether it's one or the other, who knows at this point. Has any of his family commented on this? I mean, not since this has happened. Um, any, I, any, advi- any news from family or friends that could shed light here? Um. Uh, I mean, no, I mean, throughout the family, uh, I haven't spoken directly to them, but through others, I've heard that the family has always said that he was making it up. And, you know, the problem with that is that the assumption could have been that they were simply trying to protect him. Um, but maybe they knew him better than better than we thought. So what happens now? Where does this go from here? What What are the penalties for such a crime? Well, it goes, he's, he was given a notice to appear in court in the middle of November. Um, you know, if, if this prosecution goes forward, uh, the, the government has to prove a bunch of things, which, you know, they could be tricky to prove. They have to prove that, one, there was a hoax. Um, so that could be tricky because they have to prove that he didn't do the things that he said he did. They have to also prove that he did that, he did the hoax, if they do prove that there was one. But he did it with the intention to cause fear among the public. So that's another hurdle they have to get over. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's a tricky one. It's, this is not a typical terrorism hoax case. Um, it's, as I say, the terrorism hoaxes are usually fake bomb threats or people who make up things about other people and phone them into the police and, and cause investigations to happen that, you know, are based simply on uh, lies. So this is a really novel use. This, the law has never been used for something like this, so it's going to be quite interesting to see how it unfolds in the court. Does this happen a lot? It's not very common, but it does happen. And as I say, the most common types of hoaxes uh, are usually threats, like false threats. So, um, for example, sending an envelope to someone that contains a you know a benign white powder and then saying this is ricin right. or this is... Uh, you know, and it's it's a it's one of the most common types of terrorism hoaxes, actually. And the other, as I mentioned, is a fake bomb threat, which is, happens quite often. Um, and so these these things have been prosecuted before, but not that many in Canada, thankfully. There there haven't been that many cases, but they have happened. Um, I think almost 
my understanding is every, in fact, every single case where there has been a charge so far has actually resulted in a conviction. So it's not something that prosecutors enter into lightly. Um, but this one's going to be, it's a little different. So it's, it's going to be something to watch. You know, this will be one of the, uh, you know, what, what if this turns out to one of the, to be one of those situations where, you know, two or three or four years from now we're talking about this and this all happened and he was charged and served us a minor penalty or it was thrown out and then you find out three or four years later that he's actually is involved in some way. It, it, would that ever happen? I guess it's possible, but it, or, or is a hoax a hoax a hoax? Yeah, I just, I just can't imagine that. And there's a theory that, you know, did the police do this because they're trying to smoke him out in the sense that mm. his only defense is to prove that he was in ISIS, which, you know, would raise a whole, whole bunch of other problems for him. But I just, I don't think the Crown prosecutors would have approved a charge like this unless they really thought that they could prove in court beyond a reasonable doubt that he had committed the hoax. So they must you, you imagine that in order to go forward with a case like this, they must believe that they have some evidence that is really conclusive. Uh, would there, you know, if this is a first-time offense sort of thing, there's no other uh, record of him doing this sort of thing, um, any reason that he would uh, necessarily uh, have to serve time for this or pay a penalty of some sort? Well, I mean, the maximum sentence for this is five years, so there's a possibility that he could get that. Um, You know, it all depends on the circumstances and how the court uh, perceives what he's done, and if it's proven, if it's all proven, but five years is the maximum. Uh, What about copycats, or is this the sort of thing that, well, gee whiz, why would you do this? I mean, this does seem like something, somebody who's who's looking for attention or looking to draw attention to themselves for some reason. It's hard to imagine somebody even doing this in the first place. I can't imagine that somebody yeah. being dumb enough to uh, to copy it if, if this is indeed what he's done. I mean, to, to openly on your own social media, under your own name and your own photo, to uh, to go out and say that you were in ISIS and then to give an interview to the likes of the New York Times explaining how you stab people in the heart to execute them, it's just pretty hard to conceive of somebody who could see that and the consequences now and believe that this is a good idea. Do you think you will talk to this person again and they will answer these questions? Um, I spoke to him on Friday over the phone and... Uh, the words that he said to me are not things that can be repeated on the radio. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so is he surprised this got out of hand? Is he surprised this is where it is? I don't, I don't know because, as I said, his, uh, the brief conversation we had before he hung up was not uh, of much substance. But um, I understand through people that he's speaking to that you know it's not something that he expected. I, I imagine it's not something anyone would expect in that situation. Um, but uh, So he honestly, you, you get the feeling that he honestly thought that this would not come back to bite him? I, I don't know, but you can only imagine he wouldn't have done it unless he thought he could get away with it. Good point. All right, Stuart Bell has been with us, investigative journalist for Global News. Uh, RCMP have arrested a Burlington man and charged him with a terrorism hoax charge and uh, for allegedly faking his past with ISIS. Stuart, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson podcast available on Apple podcast and Google podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson and thanks for listening.